Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. On this podcast, we're focused on engaging with culture and equipping the local church for faith and ministry. My name is John Sikotowski. I'm part of the communications team here at High Point Church. And if you're new to the podcast or to High Point Church, we've been doing an Ask Me Anything portion at the end of every sermon where the preacher that morning can answer questions from the audience. Oftentimes, they aren't able to get to all the questions, so we take time in the Engage and Equip podcast to revisit some of those that they couldn't talk about on Sunday. Today, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Nicole Kyle, our director of music and worship arts, will be discussing some of the questions they got on Sunday, January 17th. If you've got any other questions, feel free to email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd also love to have you join us for future AMAs on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. This is Nick and Nicole. We are both on staff at High Point Church. Nick is our lead pastor. I'm our worship director, and we're here to go through the Ask Me Anything questions after this sermon, which was today, Sunday, January 17th. And so we've got a bunch to get through. And um, this specific Sunday um, was continuing in our series on pursuing unity. It also is the Sunday before um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s junior day. Is it just called MLK day? I think that's what it is. Um, and so you talked about unity specifically as it relates to pursuing you. Um, you talked a bit about it as it relates to pursuing racial unity and racial justice. You also just talked about just in general, how we have to be the ones to kill the parts within us that don't want to pursue unity. And so We've got some good questions to get through. Is there anything else you want to say, giving context before the sermon, before we do that? There's always just piles of stuff. We should just dive in. All right. Let's do it. Okay. Here's the first question. Does the removal of enmity apply to um, just to Christian Christian relationships or also to Christian and non-Christian relationships as well? Um, I I think that our rejection of enmity – applies more broadly than Christian and Christian relationships. The the point I was making this morning out of Ephesians chapter two is that the, the claim that the wall of us hostility is destroyed, Mm -hmm. that that has been done can only be authoritatively declared between believers because the basis of it is our shared connection to the work of Christ. And so if you have two people that don't have a shared connection to the work of Christ, then the wall of hostility is not necessarily broken down. Right. Right. Because if Jesus, if Jesus work in us, his salvation of us is in the image of God bearing part of our humanity, right? Like he saves us as these image bearing human beings, then whatever divides us, right, is less fundamental to our being and who in our identity than that. And so we're drawn together on that basic part of identity, our salvation in Christ, right? As human beings redeemed by God, being sons and daughters of God himself, right? Mm-hmm. If the two people don't share that, they're not, they don't share that thing that draws the two together and destroys the dividing wall of hostility. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't get along. It, and it doesn't mean that people can't be reconciled. It just means that the one thing that reconciles people through anything, mm-hmm. right, the universal cure mm-hmm. isn't, isn't available to them. Yeah. Right. So you can try to treat this with other treatments and, and you could probably get some a like do okay um, relative to like, you know, surviving. But the, the solution that God offers is between believers. I think it, it, it strikes me to be a little bit like when scripture talks about being unequally yoked 
or people being both believers in marriage, right? The basis by which the two are drawn together in marriage is rooted in the basis of their both of them submitting to Christ, Mm -hmm. right? If you have somebody who doesn't submit to Christ, then you know you can still ha- try to have good relationships. Maybe you will, but not because of the unifying power of the gospel working in both of you and drawing you to each other. Right. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, it's not meant to attack other people, but it's, it is to say that God gives a universal cure mm-hmm. that is greater than any divider. Right. And so then the question, like if, for example, if you believe that there's there is a strong racism between you and another person, right? What is more basic in your relationship, even more fundamental to your human existence in your relationship than that? Mm-hmm. So as to break down that dividing wall of hostility. Right. And the answer is maybe there is something to you. Right. But the answer is also maybe there isn't. Yeah. But for the Christian. Right. But for the Christian, the is. cross is always deeper. Right. If you believe in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Um, how do you deconstruct a caricature of someone, especially if that person has hurt you? Um, I, I would say that that is, um, a little, a little broad. So, um, the first thing to do, of course, is to try to identify the caricature. Once you identify the caricature, you can start to tell yourself this person is more than this one thing. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing too, is, um, to, to begin to realize that they, they require the grace you give yourself. Like we come with, we, we're really good at coming up with excuses for ourselves. And giving ourselves grace and saying that we can't be, um, you know, like if I criticize you and you're like, well, but there's all these other things about me, right? Sure. Well, you're really good at doing that. So what you have to do is use some of that creativity on the other person, right? To see the other person with God's compassion and to see them as more than the thing. So part of it is the attitude. But the, I mean, you you can always like talk to other people who care about them or know those people. Yeah. You know, like what do you admire most about this person? Um, but, but generally speaking, a little bit of contact and just a willingness to open your eyes is usually all it takes Mm -hmm. because human beings are diverse and complicated and different and multifaceted. Yeah. And the minute, the minute you haven't artificially constricted them and your mind opens a little bit, then you can see it. Yeah. If the person has hurt you, then, um, dealing with that hurt and the the main way to deal with that hurt is confession and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Like you have to forgive. Right. right. Um, there are other ways to work through things, but that is very fundamental. Mm-hmm. That's good. Okay. We've talked a bit about these evasive euphemisms for a few weeks now. This person writes, you mentioned that we often come up with euphemisms to label our hate as something else. Can you expand on that with concrete examples to help with identifying that hate in our own lives? Um. So one of the ways to get around a euphemism sometimes is to just use different words for the vice you're trying to look at, mm-hmm. right? So for hatred feels like an extreme word to us because we use it to attack people's character. And so if you say, use words like hostility, who do I have hostility toward? Or who do I have enmity with? Like mm-hmm. there's, I have bad feeling towards them and it, it's it's not going to go away naturally. Um, somebody you have a visceral dislike for, mm-hmm. right? Um, somebody that you have a feeling of superiority towards them in something. Um, so uh, one way to test that is like somebody who you are naturally dismissive towards. Mm-hmm. Um, also somebody you're willing to believe anything about. Sure. Right. So you, you can see this uh, like in our culture 
just constantly like some like some, like i like i look at some press and they're just attacking whoever it is that kind of press person attacks yeah and the, the evidence they give for the stupidity of the other person is so weak sure and but but anything is good enough yeah if you're already prone to dismiss people so being prone to dismiss somebody mm-hmm. um thinking that someone's dangerous um, can yeah. indicate somebody who you might really hate, and, and the reason why you might really dislike them is because they maybe they are dangerous, sure, and they f- make you feel threatened, and we d- normally don't like people who threaten us, right, or that we feel threatened by. So, by using some of those other categories, hostility, enmity, visceral dislike, sense of superiority, easily dismissed, you think that they're dangerous. Those like trying to like come up with other ways to describe a symptom of hatred, mm-hmm. and then reflect on that. Yeah. And I, I tend to find that's pretty helpful. Otherwise, I mean, I, the example I gave in the sermon about my relate my my thinking about Jeremiah Wright is, is, was was meant to be a very concrete example of right. a specific kind of person. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Um, for a lot of people, this is embedded in their in their relationships and in their experiences, mm-hmm. right? Um, um, my wife grew up in a in a part of New York State where, um there was a lot of enmity between whites and blacks in her high school. Yeah. Just the sort of the place it was in the Catskills. For some reason, it just made for a lot of enmity. And so she, she had, and so the, a number of the African-American girls in her school apparently were just very combative towards her and other mm-hmm. white girls. And so she just came out of that just like with just a terrible taste in her mouth towards black women, mm-hmm. especially like teenager, you know, teenagers and just like a certain kind of attitude, a certain kind of, flavor or energy coming off of them just kind of triggers that feeling and so she's just had to like get over it and and i've seen i mean i've seen her do it some of our closest friends when we were in college were african-american because of the school we went to we we were just close with those folks in the christian fellowship brought us together and alexis had just really dear friendships with african-american women but um but she had to get over that childhood experience, right? Mm-hmm. That development. She had to realize that that was true, that that was operating totally. in her life and that she had to get past it. And the main way she got past it was is she dove right into these friendships right. with these African-American women at college who were believers. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that they believed in Jesus and Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility Yeah. in real life. And, and, she, and she, we, I mean, we ended up being in most of their weddings and stuff like that, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And them in ours. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that's helpful. I mean, I've shared, I think, on this podcast many times that my experience in a small town in Wisconsin, similar to Alexi, is just a, a different group of people mm-hmm. left a bad taste in my mouth of how, the way my family was treated, the way my siblings were treated. And I've just had to get over that. And I've had to learn that that's just because that was my experience in one place doesn't mean that's my experience all over the yeah. place. Yeah. And I mean, uh, often young women who are pretty, who, especially if they hit puberty early, they'll have a very strong dislike or distaste for male sexuality because they'll have been sexualized very young. You know, um, sometimes, sometimes you'll get same race racism. Um, like I've seen, I've seen this in like situations where um, if a, a like a white collar educated white family grows up among rural whites, mm-hmm. they'll think of like, like blue collar or farmers or people like that as just like rednecks or yeah. like, and they really do despise them and think that they're ignorant hicks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, or vi- or like, you know, people who've been citified sure. is the Southern term, you know, like turned into like citified sh- means being turned into like somebody who's shallow and cares about stupid vacuous city things sure. that don't matter and yeah. don't care about family and clan and culture. Yeah. And I mean, although, I mean, so it doesn't have to be cross-racial and some of it sometimes temperament that some people just really don't like certain kinds of people. Yeah. Introverts like yeah. don't like pushy loud people and so on. And so um, you just got to try to help see that. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I, I can be very dismissive towards certain temperaments. I have to be really careful about that actively mm-hmm. in my own life. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't think that that leads to hatred, um, but it can lead to um, caricaturing. Sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. which which always goes in a bad direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, let's keep going. Yes. How does Christ's death and resurrection change things from the Old Testament, where the Israelites were told to kill the ungodly, to today, where Christians being called to only kill sin within ourselves? Yep. Okay, we need to clarify something about the Old Testament in particular. And that is that there is only there is only one set of, I think the Hebrew word is haram passages, or it's the passages where they're told to destroy everything. Mm-hmm. So when the, the Israelites come in conquest, God explicitly says that he sent them into Egypt for 450 years. And after that 500 years is over, he was going to call them out in judgment of the Canaanites, a very particular group of people, because their sins were going to be full. And he was going to use the Israelites to be the judge, nation of judgment against the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. Um, and his... God's argument was is that the the generational depravity of the Canaanites was so complete and ubiquitous that it was in his mind better for the culture to be entirely wiped out um, than for it to pers- continue. Mm-hmm. Right. So the Israelites were called on to be a nation of judgment of a particular kind. That does not continue in the Old Testament. So after the conquest of Israel and they pushed, they're supposed to push out the Canaanites and that's a direct command of God. It's considered um, idolatry or ungodliness if they don't do it, mm-hmm. right? Once they've conquered the land, they don't have free reign to go killing the ungodly everywhere. God isn't a warmonger and he doesn't, he doesn't say, well, now that you have Israel, let's just like take over Iraq. And like, no, God gives them a particular sliver of land. It's not that big. They're to live in it in godliness, and they're not supposed to invade the nations and kill the ungodly. The ungodly are supposed to be drawn to them because of the beauty of their life. And so in that sense, um, to say that in the Old Testament people were to kill the ungodly actually isn't really true. Mm. Um, There's a specific part of salvation history where the Jews are called to fight their way into Israel, and that land is given to them by God and is supposed to be theirs. Now, obviously there's all kinds of debate about those passages and I, I'm, I'm not going to do like a whole theology thing on that right this minute. Sure. Um, but even in the old Testament, they were supposed to love their neighbors. Foreigners had all kinds of rights. They weren't supposed to go just fighting with people who weren't fighting with them. Um, there is a lot of war in the ancient world because of the nature of geopolitical relationships and non-embedded economies, but it's not, it's not like, um, God was telling his people to go be warmongers, mm-hmm. right? It's a, that's the difference between even early Judaism and early Islam. I mean, Islam was a religion developed among a, a, a people who were raiders kind of by culture. And that was part of their culture from the very beginning. And they never turned from it. Um, that was not true with the Israelites. The Israelites were shepherds. They became relatively sedentary. They engaged in agriculture mm-hmm. and they became an agricultural, agricultural based economy rather than a nomadic based economy like in Islam. So usually nomadic based economies tend to do more raiding and more of that kind of fighting and believing that, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, I, I, and also remember in the new Testament, there is some discontinuity. There are things that Jesus changes in the fullness of time, right? That this is what it was like then. And part of the reason for that is that in the old Testament are things theologians call divine concessions. Like God is when God comes in and speaks to Israel, um, Israel is already a people. They already have a culture. There's already like unjust cultural systems and all of that stuff already exists. And so when God gives them the Torah, he is regulating a lot of things that are not inherently his will, like slavery, for example, right? God never says slavery is good. 
he regulates it um, because it served a purpose because there wasn't something else to engage in, like dealing with the very poor people who just like, couldn't manage their own lives. There wasn't another mechanism for dealing with those people. And so um, house servitude being, being a, being a slave within a family was considered better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. But as, as by the time you get to the new Testament, um, slavery has already reached its death. Now um, the apostles have already undermined it, its ideology and so on. So, and that, and that was natural. I mean, God, God regulated certain things that he conceded to because you couldn't change them apparently at that moment, at least not in his mind. Um, and he tends to be right. But as time went on, some of those things were meant to go away because they were concessions all along. We were meant to grow out of them. Right. And then other things were consistent over time. Right. So some th- the things that were consistent over time moved into the New Testament on change. The things that were supposed to change, changed. Mm-hmm. And part of that is um, Jesus transitioning his people to be people of peace because we were going to be a dispersed people. So if we dispersed ourselves among the nations and fought with everybody, that wasn't going to, that's not how the love of Christ is going to get to everyone. Yeah. So part of the, it's the fundamental change to become a people in constant exile, right? We're always minorities spread among the peoples and those people shine the light in a different way than people who sedentarily live within a city mm-hmm. towards the nations around them. So yeah. anyway, yeah. there's other reasons, but that's kind of a sketch of it. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Is it okay to hate Satan? Should we only hate the sin in him instead of hating all of him? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things that the Bible never tells us is the nature and status of the dignity of angels or angelic beings, right? And so we don't really know if angels remain in God's image, right? Mm -hmm. They seem to be intelligent. They seem to be they seem to be doing a lot of things that humans would say, like if, if you described what was in the image of God in you, and then we looked at the characterization of angels in the scriptures, they seem to do virtually all those things mm-hmm. except have physical bodies. Yeah. But but the Bible explicitly says having a physical body is not what ha- having the image of God means. Mm-hmm. So then maybe they are in the image of God, right? Um, I think that there's two fundamentals that are minimums. First of all, it's important to recognize that God is not a being that believes hatred is always wrong. He forbids us to give ourselves to hatred because we are not capable of hating correctly. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're just, we're just not godly enough to hate what is detestable and know what that is and separate that from hating people and hating. Right. So the fact that God says you can't hate doesn't mean that there aren't numerous things worthy of being hated. Right. And that even he hates and will destroy, right? So I think knowing that Satan is fit for condemnation, right? And that there doesn't appear to be a path for his redemption or a, that that's part of the plan of God. I think it may be reasonable for us to hate Satan. Um, we should at least hate sin. Um, and Jesus and Satan is is characterized by being a being given over to that entirely. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, there's a verse in the book of Jude that I think is important to keep remembering. So this is Jude. It only has one chapter. So this is chapter one, verse nine, it says, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Mm. 
Yet these men, that is these false teachers Jude is talking about, these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things that they do not understand by instinct, like unreasonable animals. And then he goes on to say that they slander even angelic beings. So like, um, oh, sorry, that's verse eight. In the same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, rejecting authority and slander celestial beings. So I think what Jude is teaching is, is that don't worry about something you have no knowledge of and that you have no business doing. Mm-hmm. And his example is even the Archangel Michael, who had all the business to do everything, didn't engage in taunting or slandering or attacking or Satan. He just rebuked it. Mm-hmm. He just did his job. Right. And I, I think that's probably the right attitude to have as a Christian is to just do our job mm-hmm. to resist the devil so that he will flee. Right. And even Martin Luther, when he said that it was that sometimes you just have to flout him. It wasn't that it, it was, it's not picking on Satan. It's just glorifying Jesus. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Okay. This next person writes, what kind of unity should we look for or try to find with Catholics or Mormons? Um, okay, I would split those two into two different groups. Yeah. Um, Mormonism is, by most recognitions among Christians, a different religion, though Mormons don't think so. Right. For the most part. Yeah. Um, it depends on the person. Sometimes I feel it's just their public stuff where they say it's not another thing. But if you talk to them, they want you desperately to become a Mormon and you really need to because, well, it's different, you know? Yeah. So Roman Catholics, um, I can tell you my view on this and it is not shared by all Protestants. And that is that um, Catholicism as a movement and as a church is too large and diverse to judge in in its entirety. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some things that are in its doctrine that I think are problematic. Some Protestants have said that have anathematized the Catholic church and said that the antichrist will come through the Catholic church. I have a little bit of trouble believing that. (sighs) I think a lot of that was left over from, the Catholic church being behind a lot of persecutions Mm. of some of the early Protestants and people believing that that would be the case. I think there are much better candidates now. I think the ascendant nation state is much more likely to be the seat of an antichrist than, than the Roman Catholic church, frankly. Um, So with Roman Catholics, my, my position is always, um, do they believe the gospel? Yeah. You know, um, and I've met a lot of Roman Catholics that I think do believe the gospel. Um, and some of them have kind of wacky sacramental theology and, and some of them it's, it's more and some of them it's less. I, you know, I sure. don't, I don't really know. Right. So, um, there are some Catholics that I would consider believers. I would consider like co-belligerents in fighting secularism and in fighting for a number of very important moral things mm-hmm. toward God mm-hmm. that God believes in. Like, like, like one thing I will say about believing Catholics is some of their moral stuff, they have dead on in order. Like yeah. they are the vanguard of the rejection of abortion, they, their belief in the family and supporting the family. Yeah. Even, even their belief on birth control that people should not use birth control and should receive as many children as God gives them. Yeah. Although I disagree with that as a theological doctrine, um, the idea of being by default open to receive children a new life as a married couple and that married marriages are supposed to be in, in, acting it with the intention of fertility mm-hmm. even if it, it can't be achieved that's that's fine but like it's with the when we control our fertility and make ourselves infertile because of our wants and desires and because we don't want our lives complicated by children i mean the rejection of that by the catholic church i think is very christian yeah catholic church is intentionally global multicultural um like there's a lot of things about the roman catholic church that are, i think are really good mm-hmm. actually 
Um, but there are also other things that I think are really theologically problematic. Mm-hmm. And then other things that I think are just off. Yeah. So I think that we can have a lot of unity with a, a lot of Catholics. Um, but there's there's always going to be a functional separation relative to things like allegiance to the, to the Pope. Sure. Um, uh, belief, belief in sacramental, the, the nourishment of sacraments. But part of the thing is, is every time I try to explain to a Catholic what's what we don't agree on, they're all like, "We don't." They they always say, "We don't believe that." Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Same thing with Orthodox people. I'm like, you know, you guys believe this, and I just, I just don't agree. And they're like, "Yeah, but we don't, but we don't believe that." Yeah. So one of the things I think people don't understand is that Catholics and and Orthodox folks have changed their doctrine a lot. Sure. Yeah. They've changed what they mean by it, what they say by it, and yeah. and. And whether or not we they would admit it, um, both Catholics and Protestants have adjusted their theology relative to the criticism of each other. Sure. So Catholics have been much more careful to state that we're saved by Christ and only by Christ, yeah. even though the church is integrally involved and yeah. works have to accompany faith, yeah. um, that we're saved by faith and faith alone. That's true. Yeah. But functionally, in living out and experiencing our salvation— the church is the mother's womb that we pass through in, in nurturing and that we were, we, we really do need mm-hmm. and, and so on. Right. And so um, there has been a lot of that work that's been done and I don't want, I don't want to spit in the face of that. Right. So mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of possibilities there relative to Mormons. I think that Mormons um, tend to be co-belligerents on things like religious freedom. Sure. And um, cer- a certain kind of, um, conservative values Mm -hmm. that are, that are constant with Christian faith, right? Obviously Christians have, have liberal values also, but some of our values that seem conservative is that we, we want to conserve God's first institution, the, the procreative, like heterosexual um, complementarian family. And, and a lot of Mormons do as well. So, right. That makes sense. Um, So there are a number of things like that, that I think that there's some unity on, but having unity in Christ with Mormons I think has a lot to do with how well Mormons know their Mormonism. Hmm, uh-huh. The less they understand their Mormonism and the more they think that it's just a sect of Christianity and the more colloquial their theology, the more likely it is that we can have some kind of unity with them. Because if we, if you say, well, will you believe in Jesus to be saved? And they're like, absolutely. And they don't actually know Mormon doctrine relative to Jesus not being the co-eternal son. Yeah. And all that other kind of stuff that is heretical, right. and and um, I would say probably apostate mm-hmm. in Mormonism. Um, the less they know of that, the better. And because sure. Mormonism is a religion in which you proceed through into more secret knowledge as you progress, mm-hmm. um, at least in certain situations, um, a lot of, there's a lot of Mormons that just don't know that stuff. Sure. And and so they, they're really befuddled when we're like, you, yeah, this is a cult or this is a false religion. They're like, this is just Christianity just revived or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I think it's real limited, but I, I think that we should be as unbelligerent as possible about that limitedness, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And if you're going to be mean to Mormons, you better learn something about Mormonism. Sure. So that when you say Mormons believe blah, 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 that you know what the heck you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've only read two or three books on Mormonism and it was a while ago. Yeah. Okay. Because frankly, Matt and I just don't deal with it very much. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I do. I dealt with it more when I was a student on campus than ever since yeah. moving away. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so this next question is um, somewhat re- related to that. Is it okay? Well, maybe not as much as I initially thought. Is it okay to not like someone that you don't mesh with while still loving each other for the sake of unity in the church? 
according to King's sermon, love your enemy. He said, absolutely. He, I mean, he, he was like, he was like, listen, I'm not talking about liking people. Yeah. There's lots of people you're not going to like mm-hmm. for lots of reasons, but you can love them. Now, sure. I, th- I think that there is some danger in relieving yourself of the obligation to be pleased with someone else. Mm-hmm. And I think that we should work on the attitude of being easily pleased. And so I try even people that I would naturally deeply dislike. I try to get to where I approve of them, right? Because if, if you don't feel an approval of people in your heart, they sense it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, now, not everybody has as judgy arresting face as me, apparently, <laughs> but like, I, I mean, I really have to put in my mind that like, I approve of all these people. Yeah. And they, so for me, I split up people I like as in, I really want to spend time with them because I just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it just, it, re- it rejuvenates me. They like the same stuff as me. We work on things together. We talk about stuff I find interesting. And then people that I just, I decide I like, I, that is I approve of them mm-hmm. and I want them to feel it. Yeah. And so I would say if there's someone in the church you don't mesh with, that is you don't just like adore being with them. You just, then you don't have to try to create a friendship mm-hmm. based on that. But I think that you can still get to where you quote, like them. Like you decide in your mind that you like them. Mm-hmm. Cause if you don't, You'll decide in your mind you don't like them, yeah. and that tends to progress. Right. When I was in Florida early as a pastor, there was this guy on the softball team our church put together mm-hmm. who was a very unlikable person. Mm-hmm. And I was just having a lot of trouble with this guy being on our team because yeah. he was just – just he kind of made my skin crawl a little bit. He was kind of creepy and kind of weird. And nobody liked him. <clears throat> and I just felt like the the Lord was trying to get me to just decide I liked him. Yeah. Just be like – you know, just like just decide you like him. Yeah. Just decide all the stuff you do, you like it. Yeah. Right. And I just, I just, every time I saw him, I'm like, you know what? I like, I like this guy. Yeah. I like him. What's not to like? Right. So what he has manners that are a little odd. Who cares? He's a human person. Yeah. Right. And so I just, I try to get over it and just like open my heart a little bit to like, there's a reason why he's like this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I found it successful. Like I, I he yeah. didn't bother me. Yeah. Like he and I, you know, like he and I never like made model airplanes together in right. my basement. Yeah. But like I uh, I enjoyed his presence, he enjoyed mine for what it was while we were together. Right. And I think that's a better unity than just me loving him just functionally. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean that gets into cuz then you're you're making a distinction here that you can like someone and they cannot be like a deep friend of yours. Or even a marginal friend of yours, like an, an outer fringe friend, yeah. but you could still inter when you have interactions with them, treat them kindly, treat them with compassion, treat them with dignity, and like you were saying before, show them your approval yeah. of them as someone who bears the image of God. Yeah, my experience with minority friends is that a good bit of what they mean when they talk about inclusion, that inclusion is important, is the feeling that you're valued when you're in the room. The people value you. They they want you to be there. They care about you. You're not on the outside. You're on. You're as in the circle as anybody else, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know how you do that if you don't decide you like somebody. Yeah. Otherwise, you like in all these nonverbal cues, you just keep communicating to people that you don't really like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I absolutely. don't. I just don't think that works. You know. Right. All right. Let's keep going. This person writes. This person is asking when we feel attacked by our enemies. What does it look like to reach out to them in love rather than either withdrawing or responding with hate? 
I mean, again, this could, this could be multiple things, but I, um, if you read through the Proverbs carefully, one of the things that it says is that it's, it's to the glory of a man or woman, or it's to the wisdom to overlook an insult. Yeah. When we get insulted, we tend to feel threatened by it and we tend to fixate on the insult. So there's, there's this, um, I forget what it's called in police theory, but like if somebody comes up to you to mug you and puts a gun in your face, mm-hmm. it's decently likely that you won't be able to identify the person in a lineup afterwards or in the courtroom because what tends to happen to untrained people is they hyper-focus on the gun and sure. they don't really look at the person. Mm-hmm. And so, um, when it, that's what, what an insult does or when it, what an attack does. When somebody attacks you and you feel threatened, you tend to naturally hyper-focus on the attack, mm-hmm. right? Rather than the wider context of like, why are they doing this? And what are they like? And why did this happen in the first place? And how, right? Is there anything we can do about it? And how do we, blah, 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 right? Sure. So one of the first steps is to train your heart and mind and wisdom to not hyper-focus on the, the threatening thing, mm. right? And, and what that means is, is that you have to have the capacity to overlook an offense, mm-hmm. Okay. The second thing is a certain amount of abnegation, right? There's this place in First Corinthians that says um, about about the world, you know, like like the the world isn't going to be like this forever, right? And, and the apostle says that a believer should use the things they have like they're not going to last, mm-hmm. right? And um, or I, I think one of the things he says is um, to treat the things like they're not yours to keep. Sure. And so one of the one of the ways in which we can, we prepare ourselves to be attacked is to not be so idolatrous of the things that could be harmed. Mm-hmm. Right. So if our foolish pride is going to be attacked, well, it's better not to have pride. It's better to be humil- humble. Right. right. If our good name is going to be attacked, then maybe we need to work right now on caring less about our good name. Sure. And more about our truthful actions and sure. and so on. And so yeah. you like go through this process of like. Not like trying to be like disconnected from the world in the Buddhist sense of complete detachment, but you you do want things that can be detached, mm-hmm. right? You don't necessarily have to be already detached from everything, but yeah. like if something gets yanked off of you, you want to, you know, it's kind of like, you know, wearing some kind of like armor, but it has release straps on it. So if it gets caught on something, you can you can pull the release strap yeah. and it'll come off. Right. right. And so, um, so th- this is uh, big in scuba diving, right? There's a bunch of things that are on you and it's important to have them strapped on really well, but it's also important to be able to get them off sure. in case right. they get caught on something. Right. And you want your, the things you have in this world, whether they're physical things um, or whether they're um, th- things that you possess in, in your, in your person, like your confidence or your, your security or your whatever. And so that's one of the reasons why dying every day, taking up our cross and dying every day, like it says in, in, um, in Luke nine, I think Christians overlook how important that is as a thing that every day you have to wake up and say, and know that nothing in this world and in this life, um, will survive. Yeah. Not even your physical life. You are going to die. And, if you let it go, if you can really let it go, then it's much harder to hurt you terribly. Mm-hmm. And you can focus on, um, you can, you can see this in like writings by like people who are servants their whole lives, or even people, even some people who are enslaved, that the dehumanization of that also created an abnegation in this life because they didn't have anything. They weren't, they, 
because they didn't have anything, they focused on others, mm-hmm. sometimes even the other that was oppressing them. Sure. Mm-hmm. And they did good to that person because that was the only thing they had in front of them to do. Yeah. And they just embraced that and did it. Yeah. And I think that Christians can do that towards our, our oppressors or whatever kind they are. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and we better learn to do it because the stuff we're dealing with right now is kind of child's play. Yeah, sure. Yep. You know. Yeah. Okay, we're going to get into um, a handful of questions that are related to politics. And um, okay. there was a, a question during the AMA during the sermon where someone asked, you know, why are we focusing on politics right now? Shouldn't we be focusing on other things? And I thought your answer was very helpful for me, um, hopefully for others as well, just that that um, political parties and politics just generally, it's an example of one of the false idols and false religions of our culture. And so we've got to learn to recognize it for that. And we've got to learn to reject these false religions in our lives. And you, you mentioned. Yeah, if you just, well. if you just deal with personal sins, but you don't deal with the idolatries that support people's sins, yeah, you actually won't end up succeeding in dealing with the sins because the idolatry will keep motivating mm-hmm. new, new bodies ones. and new expressions yeah. of sin. Yeah. yeah. So, so I thought that was very helpful. So we're going to go into a handful of questions related to that. Great. Here's the first one. Isn't it a generalization to say that one political party is persecuted more than the other? Yes. I think this person is insinuating that I did that, which is false. So in the sermon, what I actually said was that conservatives needed to be especially careful about their desensitivity to the word or concept of hatred because the political left um, attacks conservative people by calling them hateful. Mm-hmm. Now, see, the thing is, that's not an overgeneralization. That's literally exactly what happens. Now, conservatives also seek to intimidate people by making them feel like bad people. Mm-hmm. They just, it's a different thing that they do. They don't yeah. say use hate, right? They usually it's, um, it's the insinuation that they, um, they are part of a totalitarianism that will destroy human freedom and wreck civilization. That's usually what they do. And, and the catch all for that is socialism, yeah. right? So generally speaking, conservative will call a person on the left, a socialist or a leftist, which means that they believe in the doctrines of radicalism and in socialism and the kinds of corporatism that lead to tyranny. Mm-hmm. And that because of that, they are essentially an oppressor, mm-hmm. right? They don't generally say it's hate. Though in some cases, they're kind of like, that really looks like you hate. You're calling me a hater, but you're yeah. full of hate, yeah. right? And there's some truth to that. There's a lot of hatred that comes from the left. Yeah. And so it's not weird. Um, there's a lot of hatred on both sides, but that's not the point. The point is, is that the name calling from the left, their strategy of intimidation, right? And wearing people down is to call them haters. They're homophobic. They're racist. They're full of hate, right? Mm-hmm. Hate isn't a family value. You don't hear conservatives say crap like that. Yeah. Conservatives say crap. They say all kinds of stuff to tell people on the left that they're bad people, right? right? So when I'm preaching specifically about hate, mm-hmm. right, and that's the thing we're dealing with, I'm turning to the conservatives and say, listen, you get called haters all the time. People abuse that category when they particularly attack you, which could lead you to say, Look, people call me a hater all the time, and I'm not one, mm-hmm. but I'm not one, right? Well, but that doesn't solve this issue, right? right. As to whether or not before Jesus- Right. You have hatred in your heart. Right. We have hatred in our heart towards other people right. or or something that is quickly growing into it. Right. And so I wanted to encourage conservatives, right? Because that's true. I mean, I get in positions like that all the time where people 
treat me like I am a conservative. And then they attack me like one. And they're like, you know, you're, you must be a hater because as a Christian, there are a few ways in which I am conservative. Mm -hmm. That is I'm pro family. Mm -hmm. I believe that um, there are limitations on homosexual expression Mm -hmm. in the Bible. I believe, you know, certain things like that. And, and, um, and I, for example, I don't believe that every minority should be believed and that we should do whatever people say if they've been hurt, even if they're a different race than me. And so therefore I'm not like, I don't say to like black activist friends, whatever you want to do, we'll do. Right. And so sometimes I'm thought of as like a, like a race racist enabler or, or that I want to enable white supremacy. And so I'm a, I'm a hater of minority people. And what that does to me is I say, listen, you're just crying wolf. You see something you don't like. You don't want to actually have an argued about it. You don't want to discuss reasons or any of that kind of stuff. So you're just attacking me personally. And what I'm going to do is the only thing you can do when somebody sneers at you is reject it. You don't consider it because you're not having a rational conversation. People are trying to intimidate you. So what you do is you harden yourself against it. That's what you're supposed to do to be psychologically healthy. Is you say, I'm not considering this. I'm dismissing it. Well, if in order to do that, you get used to dismissing the accusation of hatred, what happens when Jesus comes along and says, listen, where we tend to be hate, you tend to be hateful, mm-hmm. right? Well, when Jesus says that, you're supposed to listen, right? No matter who's calling you a hater, the rest of the day, no, right? So, so yes, if I had said that one political party in America um, is persecuted more than the other, that it that would be a very general statement, and in America today, I think it would be a false generalization. Right. Mm-hmm. However, it is also important to say, remember that generalizations aren't necessarily false or necessarily wrong. Right. There are a lot of generalizations that are true. Yeah. Americans are wealthy relative to the history of the world. Mm-hmm. That's a complete generalization. It's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. So um, even if it was a generalization, I'm not sure that would even, anyway. So yeah. um, th- the point is, is that you have to listen specifically. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um. So, for, yeah. So, so you could. There's a number of ways I could. I could give other examples no, about this, but I'll, I think that's I will helpful because I, 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 I agree that that I believe that's the part of the sermon that they probably were responding to, mm-hmm. and I think your clarification is helpful. There, that some people get really upset that if if I say anything to defend conservative people or people that might vote Republican, they just get they just can't hear that. And my response to people like that is you need to deal with this acrimony in your heart that you think Republican conservative people are indefensible. They are not. You are wrong. That is a bigotry. Now I've said the same thing to Republicans as well about Democrats. Mm-hmm. So don't, I mean, we're, I think we're going to talk about this in a minute yeah. um, yep. relative to the next question, but, but like th- this, like, str- and, and you need to remember we live in Madison. Mm-hmm. We live in Madison. So the stridency and this town is going to be left against right mm-hmm. because, because the left is in the ascendancy. It has the power, it has the right to speak, it has the media, it has the universe. Like it has every right to bully the minority, which in this town is conservatives. When I lived in Panama City, Florida, it was the opposite. Mm-hmm. And I had to say sometimes to the conservative people, I'd say, listen, like back off. Mm-hmm. Like you have all the bullying power here. You need to be very delicate. Right. You know, and so yeah. as somebody who's lived in, in like 
liberal dominated spaces in New York, Chicago, and Madison, and who's lived in conservative dominated spaces when I lived for seven years in Panama City. I know what it's like mm. to be on both sides of this. Yeah. And it's it's an, and just having the majority on your side does ugly things to you unless you are very vigilant. Right, right. Yeah. And I see it. I see it in Christians of Madison, especially younger ones, because most younger ones don't know the argument for conservatism. They don't they don't know the political philosophy of it. They don't understand the economics. They just don't understand it at all. And be, and they don't they're not connected enough with the nature of how sociological realities work out between people as to why people want to conserve a lot of these kinds of functional human norms, mm-hmm. and so they just think it's dumb. And of course, they think it's probably stupid because they've been told that their whole lives, and so they don't have a lot of charity for it. Yeah. And my response to that is, um, close your mouth until you understand it. Sure. And if if you are that person, I would say. Um, uh, Roger Scruton's book, How to Be a Conservative, I think that's the name of it, or How to Be a Conservative, is probably the best single volume. It's not very big. It is demanding. It's intellectually demanding. Sure. Um, but he relates conservatism to every leftist movement. Oh. And what's right and wrong about it. Mm-hmm. It's like it's very much a yes, yes, but, yes, but sure. kind of thing. And it shows how conservatism is for most liberal and progressive ideals but seeks to pursue it by different means because it has a different understanding of human nature. Sure. And when you, when you look at that, you begin to realize that there are a lot of ways in which that conservative ideal of what human nature is, is very close to the Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. But you also recognize, you also can find that in um, democratic politics as well. Yeah. That there is a, a reformationist understanding of human nature in liberal politics that is necessary and it's often not understood within conservative mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move to these next ones. The the this one says, um, how involved in politics should a Christian get? And how close to their heart should they hold their political convictions? This question is somewhat relative to how political everything is within a, a culture and a society. Right. So sure. um Benito Mussolini's definition of fascism was everything inside the state, nothing outside the state, and nothing against the state. Right? And so the idea within fascism was that it was it was totalitarian in the sense that ev- the total was all the total of everything was the state. And so when that when so, when that happens, literally everything's political. Like making pasta is political. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so when that happens, the Christian who relates to anything in their world is by definition relating to something politically, right? Now, in the United States, the idea um, with the founding of the Constitution was that the government would be involved as little as possible, right? In fact, in the United, in the United States, to speak of this, quote, state is something that what didn't happen for a very long time. In fact, there, there's, this, there's this interesting – in Martin Luther King's sermon, Love Your Enemies, there's a place where he says um, – the United States. And then he says, excuse me. And he corrects himself and he says, these United States. Because even as late as the 60s, even in a very liberal movement that King was a part of, even inside the black church, he corrected himself to say, sorry, no, the United States is not a state. It is not a nation state a la Europe. It is a union of independent states that are regional, cultural and the federal government does not rule everything, uh-huh. right? Now, even though King looked to the federal government 
he still looked to the federal government for basic human rights, mm-hmm. like the right to vote mm-hmm. and so on. Not necessarily the right tax rate or any of that kind of thing. Now, later in his ministry, he became much more statist because he believed that um, dealing with poverty required large state action. Now, I think his economics was all wrong. I think he misunderstood macroeconomics and he didn't understand how poverty would be alleviated best. And I think, I think time and history has proven him wrong. As we've seen millions and billions of people come up out of bone crushing poverty through the free exchange system, I think King has been shown to be wrong. However, he has shown to be right in financial distribution methodologies, like how, like, the, the kind of equity he saw has not materialized in that system, right? But the point is, is that even he, like in the, in the 60s, was like, these United States. Because in America, the idea of a state was anathema to us. Um, in the time, a little bit after the Civil War, um, I, I think I've told, said this on this podcast before, the total amount the mm-hmm. average family paid in like 1990s dollar to the federal government was like $20. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the taxation level that the colonists rebelled over was like pennies on the dollar of what we pay now. They would consider us at this present moment entirely under the boot of tyranny relative to the level of taxation that we suffer and the amount of laws that we face. Now, that doesn't mean they're right. It just means that these are very different conceptions of the world and how they function. Now, the point here is in the colonies in 1776, when the government was small or like in 1785, when the government was very small, the Christian didn't have to be hardly involved in politics at all or even think about it. They voted every once in a while. For the most part, they just lived out their lives within the social contract of the free the free associations and exchanges that they engaged in in their life. Mm-hmm. The more government comes into the ascendancy, the more it stylizes itself as a state and the more it seeks to tell us all what to do. And the more everything is won and lost in the government rather than the free choices of people outside the government through their free exchanges and free associations, what we call civil society, the more everything matters politically. And the more anybody who wants to even just be free has to be involved in politics. In the United States, partly because of the ascendancy of leftism in America and because of the way in democracy we tend to try to buy the votes of people, both Democrats and Republicans have moved for more and more to be won and lost in Washington. They've grown K Street, that is the lobbying arm of the federal government, and more and more money has been spent at the federal government level. Well, the more that happens, the more people have to fight for where everything is won and lost. And so even if you just want to be left alone, things get political. So I think as America becomes more political and we're just like screaming down the highway of being more political, everything is inside the state. Everything's political. Cancel culture is a version of that where everything's political because cancel culture is a kind of advocacy, mm-hmm. right? Um, it demonstrates that everything is already political in America. And that's a very terrible and sad thing. So I think that the Christian has to at least consider how we can advocate for that to be, for that to be lessened. Mm-hmm. Can we make less political? The problem is, is that for a lot of people, that sounds just conservative. That sounds like a conservative value. And the thing is, it is. Smaller governments, freer governments, freer peoples is a conservative value, but it's also a liberal small L value, mm-hmm. right? Liberalism didn't mean generosity with the poor and giving them as much money as possible and giving everybody as much money as possible, which is what liberal large L progressivism means. Liberal small L that came from the 1800s meant liberality with each other to leave each other alone. 
That's what liberalism meant, mm-hmm. right? Because in some ways, liberalism grew out of the wars over religion and the wars between the nation states of Europe with all these people fighting each other over all these things and forcing each other to live and believe certain things. People were like, look, we need to leave each other the heck alone. And Britain like sort of like fought through this and tried to figure that out. So by the time people came to America, people were like believed in liberalism, like leave each other the heck alone. So I think Christians are going to at least need to be involved in politics, at least to move us back in the direction of liberalism. But if everything's in the state and nothing's outside the state, as more and more things are with social media and cancel culture and all that, I just don't see how we can avoid it. If you avoid it, you will be living, you'll, you'll be living by lies. So how, how would you then say, how would you manage that tension with what you said this morning in church that our involvement in politics, we have to be aware of how the political sphere is also a false religion. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we have to involve ourselves in it, but not hope in it. Um, I, I think for the most part, um, my hope for government is that it not destroy us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, government is by nature self-important and devouring, according to the book to First Samuel. And um, when people forget that, they entrust themselves to things in themselves, the government ways they should never dream. And the collusion now between government and extremely large data gathering businesses like Google, Facebook, Twitter, um, uh, there's, so, I mean, even your insurance company is data mining mm-hmm. you and then sharing that with other companies and the government. Um, it, it's, it, it's really difficult to have studied anything about um, 20th century communism and how people's lives were controlled and then to see the infinitely more powerful technological methodologies of control and to see people moving towards controlling each other's political views and canceling each other, doing all that kind of thing. And uh, I mean, I I just don't see how you don't put those. I mean, I don't see how those it's not two plus two equals four on that. I mean, it it just, and it may just be like me being steeped in the study of human nature in certain situations Mm -hmm. that makes me feel this way. And that I, part of my Christian faith early on was to be steeped in the persecution literature of Christians under communism and totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. That this, that I'm like, hey guys, uh, this is not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that, um, but but also there's, I, I, let me, I should say this too, um, government within its scope, in its lane, can do a lot of good. Mm-hmm. It can do the good conservatives want to see. That is, it can uphold law and order in an orderly society in which people can exchange and associate with each other in ways that help them thrive. And within the progressive perspective, there are things that the government can do without becoming this overwrought, debt-creating Goliath that controls everybody. I mean, you can have a you can have a controlled welfare state in which you have programs for the poor to make sure people aren't starving, mm-hmm. and you can you can use it to slightly redistribute wealth in a way that is good for the poor. And I mean, that's a, that's a pursuit of, of liberalism large or a certain kind of progressivism that you can do through government and you can do pretty well. Mm-hmm. There are some social things you can do pretty well through government. Most you can't, but a few you can. And um, we, we don't pay that close attention to those things, partly because we're doing so many other things, right? One of the, one of the things that Jeremiah Wright, who I mentioned today, got in trouble for was he got upset about how much attention was being given to gay marriage in, I don't know, it was like 2013, 2014. He's like, he's like, we got all these people that like, they, they can't go to the doctor. 
And we're like fighting about gay marriage. This is so dumb. Like let's, let's focus on the poorest people in South Chicago and trying to get these kids some protein and like some basic stuff so that they can have a life. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, but that, but see, it was politics that ruined that. Pol- there was a political opportunity, but it was also politics that ruined it. So I think we live in a moment where many Christians will have to be somewhat politically engaged. And other Christians will just need to follow Christians that are trustworthy, that are politically engaged. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think for a lot of Christians, if you just trust a few people that you really trust and follow them um, and advocate for what, what they encourage and, and pay general attention w- without too much involvement, you can act faithfully. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move on to these next questions. This is what, uh, would you say that a Christian should never vote for a political party that support, supports abortion, i.e. the Democratic Party? I don't think I would say that categorically be- for a couple of reasons. Um, all platforms are a series of trade-offs, right? So the Democratic Party has a platform and it probably has, I don't know, 50 to a hundred. I don't know how many different little views it has. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. the Democratic Party has lots of different views because it, it, it like it incorporates lots of different little constituencies. And so that has all these like different views to cobble together as constituencies. Um, and so, and so there's, there's other things that must be considered like, um, what is the possibility that you could get some movement on abortion if you elected person A or B, mm-hmm. right? Um, also there are, there are a few Democrats left that are not pro-abortion that are pro-life. Mm-hmm. It's not very many. Um, I think it'd be great if there were some Christians that generally speaking, could they connected with the ethos of the democratic party saying like, I like the idea that government needs to have representation for whoever has the least power in any power relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. The problem is, is that if you have a mother and a fetus, a fetal human, a pre-born human being, who has the power in that power differential? Like to say, well, because of patriarchy, the man wants the baby to be born. So it's the woman who's disempowered is baloney. Mm-hmm. The, the creature that has less power in that situation is the child. And so if you are on the little guy's team in power relationships, in abortion, you're on the baby side, mm-hmm. right? Then when it comes to men beating up women, you're on the woman's side, mm-hmm. right? And like, I mean, you can work your way through this. It's not that hard. And so I, I think it'd be, I think it'd be great to have some Christians that I could vote for who are Democrats, mm-hmm. who were pro-life. And so, I, and I think that um, part of what's happened in the Democratic Party is that a lot of Christians have not fought for this very well. And a lot of um, the pro-abortionness in the Democratic Party is rel- is fairly reflexive. I've seen this talking sure. to some African-American pastor friends who are like, I'm, I, I'm like sort of shocked to find that they're like, like reflexively pro-choice. And I'm like, what? And they're like, well, you know, this is a big problem for our people. And like these women, I mean, it's hard for them to afford these children. I'm like, I'm like, okay, time out. Let's think this through ethically. Do you believe that this is a baby? Like it's like five minutes and they're like, yeah, this is a problem I don't need. Right. Cause like for them, it's like, it's a social problem. Mm -hmm. They're trying to deal with a social problem and see like as a white dude who like, for th- this, this I have the I have the distance for this to be an abstraction for me. Sure, sure. So for me, I can think of through abstractly and be like, "Bullcrap! You can't kill these babies. Are you crazy?" Right. 
if I was in a situation where I was meeting with women constantly mm-hmm. who were pregnant with, with, with children, they were terrified to try to provide for. I'm sure that that would have a strong emotional effect on me because of my empathic relationships with those women. Right. But philosophically speaking, yeah. the person who can do ethics in the abstract is often more accurate mm-hmm. than the person whose mind is clouded by their empathy. Yeah. So, yeah, so so I th- I think that the reason why some Christians do say that you should never vote for Democrats because the party's for abortion is because they say if you compare it relatively to any other problem the Democratic Party is on the right side of. And if you recognize that on average between 750,000 and a million human lives are extinguished with abortion in America each year, that in the city of New York, less than half of the African-American children that are conceived ever make it out of the womb. And you realize the staggering scale of the horror of this infanticidal murder regime. It's hard to imagine that like nine unarmed African-American men were killed last year and that outweighs it. Right? Just the, the scope of the abortion industry the hundreds of thousands of deaths, the eradication of half of the black race in America annually. I mean, these are are horrifying to the point of that they're indistinguishable from genocides in the sense that like they kill as many people though. They don't, they don't in themselves wipe out, wipe out entire races. So they're not technically genocides. Um, But like if, if, when you start to think of that in terms of like proportion, it seems unthinkable that you'd be like, well, you know, Democrats are for that, but you know, they're also for the poor. I I find that un, an unthinkable comparison. Now, I do think it's reasonable. So there's two arguments that Democrats make that I think are reasonable to make. The first is there is there are some arguments made that the number of abortions in America that actually happen declines under democratic administrations because of more generous welfare payouts and so on. Mm-hmm. And people feel more empowered or they maybe have fewer unwanted pregnancies or they feel more confident that they can keep their children. And so the actual number of abortions decreases. I haven't looked into those numbers enough to know that they're accurate, but I haven't looked into them enough to know, know that they're not accurate. Yeah. If they're accurate, that is that is good. I did see one study about that during this past election cycle to support it. It was just one, but yeah. 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 So there's still some flaws in the moral reasoning there that like, if what should happen is we should stop engaging in state sponsored infanticide, if that's what should happen, then the fact that one party modestly decreases the number of like annihilated children who are torn limb from limb in the womb, like that doesn't really solve anything. Right. If we resign ourselves to abortion existing in perpetuity, or if we believe that the Republicans who say they want to do something about abortion really don't, right? Mm-hmm. Then it makes sense that like if the best we could do is just decrease the number, then maybe Democrats are the best people for it, right? And then of course the second argument is this isn't going to get changed. Like you can you can elect Republican after Republican after Republican. They're never going to change this. They don't want to, they don't really want to. And they're not gonna. And if they're not gonna, then even though this is a big deal, you just take it off the scale. Because if nothing's gonna happen, nothing's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, I don't know if I totally buy that argument, but I, I think those are 
both plausible arguments that are meaningful, uh-huh. right? Um, so, so yeah, I think categorically saying a Christian can never vote Democrat. And plus, part of the issue too here is is that like just in the in the era of Donald Trump, the parties like sifted. I don't know, like fifteen percent. Like they're they're just different parties over four years. Mm-hmm. They've changed. So I don't even know what Democrat means sure. or Republican means. I mean, I thought I knew what Republican meant, and then Donald Trump became the candidate of the Republican Party and its president, right? Which isn't what I thought Republican meant, right? Right. And in some ways he was very Republican in terms of his economic policies and like certain things he did with the economy and laws and judicial appointments. I mean, he was one of the best judicial appointers from a Republican's perspective, like ever. But he also was like, Republicans are supposed to believe like in civilization and things like manners as part of that. And that's not a mark of Donald Trump. Right. So like, I don't know what the, I don't know what the democratic party is going to be in three years. I don't know what the Republican party is going to be in three years. Mm-hmm. Who freaking knows. And so for me to say categorically that something's out, I just don't even know if I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I guess that's a lot, but um, I understand when people say you should never vote for a Democrat. If you're a Christian, I think it has a logic. I think, I also think that you can say, um, this is way more fluid than that, or you can, or you can make the arguments I said from the democratic perspective. Right. Right. So, yeah. Um, so the, this next question is very much related. You gave abortion as a specific example of part of the democratic platform that Christians should reject. What is a specific example of the Republican platform that Christians should reject? Of the Republican platform. There's a number of Republican behaviors that I think are easy to attack. Well, why don't um, you start there? Yeah. Um, I think it's much easier. I think that I think Republicans are much harder to attack on their platform because their platform is equalitarian in the sense that it's like it's philosophically meant to appeal to all humanity rather than the organization of interest groups around the things each of those interest groups want as minorities all coming together to have enough of a voice to win. Um, In practice, what Republicans have done is um, for example, a lot of Republicans have said very clearly that the party's just not been interested in blacks for years, just full on. Like there's a number of Republican consultants that are like, look, like, Black Republicans have been saying, like, we need to pay attention to black communities, and they just haven't. Mm-hmm. There tends to be something of a disdain for the inner city because there's not a lot of Republican votes there. Those tend to be blue bastions. And um, so the Republican cities tend to do better in certain things. Um, just dis- disinterest in, like, deep urban problems just don't seem to be that important. Republicans, I think, struggle with their base relative to the trade-offs of certain reforms that are charitable. So, for example, I remember talking with um, a young woman in our church who was writing legislation for one of the Republicans in the Wisconsin House. And we were talking, I was talking to her about prison reform. And I said, listen, some of this prison reform is very Republican because it would get it would get these offenders back to work better. They'd become working tax-paying members of society, which is a Republican ideal, right? And her response was, I know. She's like, but listen, anything that makes it easier for ex-offenders is dead on arrival with our base. They're just not interested in it because these are criminals and they don't want, and it's not like, it's not like they want to punch criminals in the face. It's like, they don't want, 
they don't want to be exposed to criminals, right? Th- this is frankly true for a lot of white liberals. They just aren't allowed to say so, but they, that's how they feel, right? They don't. So they don't want, for example, like banning the box or something like that. They don't want that because they want to know the person's an offender and they want to know as soon as possible. And they don't want to hire them and they don't want to be forced to hire them or expected to hire them, right? Um, and yet, like, that's a problem. Christians don't believe in putting people in positions where they can't they can't live out their God-given humanity. They can't be a man or a person or a woman, right? Like I, I think of that old sign from the from the Memphis um, sanitation workers protest, the the sign that said, I am a man. Like there, mm-hmm. there are certain ways in which we treat people which seems to treat them like they aren't human beings. Yeah. And the um Though there are a lot of factual problems in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Just her historiography is just atrociously bad in much of her logic. But her argument that the idea that when somebody comes out of prison, they retain a permanent label. And that permanent label places them in a class of people out of which they can't move. That insight that that creates a new like way to control that new subclass. Now, I don't believe. What, like she did does that it's an intentional way of creating a new Jim Crow that white people did on purpose. But I do think that functionally it functions like a new Jim Crow and eliminates people from the functionality of advancement in society and functioning well in society. And Republicans just aren't motivated about that. They don't seem to be highly motivated about it. Now, the funny thing about it is president Trump did more prison and prisoner reform than almost any president we've had in a long time. And there's a lot of black Democrats that were like, Hey, that was freaking good. And, and a lot of the problem came from the, from the Biden and Clinton 1991 crime bill, which ended up landing a lot of African-Americans in prison. Um, So, you know, like, ah, it's all icky, but like, I think that there, I think that there is in Republican circles, this feeling that, if the economy was just free enough, if the poor worked hard, they'd be fine. And they, I think that they, they comfort themselves that that's true because they see people who were poor who made it and they go, see that person, they made it. And what Democrats tend to understand is that all, all poor people aren't the same and they're not all poor for the same reason. And they don't all have the same elasticity and flexibility and capacity to overcome poverty. And so they don't look at the people who overcome poverty apparently on their own and say, see, all poor people could do that. They say, of course, there's a subset of people among the poor who will do that. But there's huge swaths of people among the poor who are just struggling to be barely functional. And if you just say like, screw you people, you should work harder because these people made it. You don't understand poverty, why people are poor. You just don't get it. And you, it's an inhuman way of looking at yeah. the diversity of human capacity. And so um, I think that, I think um, compassion for the effects of past injustice is something Republicans aren't closely connected with. I don't, I mean, I don't think some of the arguments for how we should deal with it in the Democratic Party are very good arguments, but I think that the the fact remains, like this idea that, like when I hear arguments about reparations, for example, I usually don't think that it's a practicable thing. And I think that many of the arguments against reparations are actually more correct than the arguments for reparations. But I still think that the concept of reparations ought to resonate within you a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, Abraham Lincoln, who was a Republican, said, 
um, we deserve the civil war. It's basically what he said in the second inaugural was we deserve the civil war because um, if God ought to ring out from us in blood, every drop of sweat of unpaid for toil of 200 years of slavery, we deserve that. And so, so um, Lincoln was concerned that the civil war was actually not a war between the North and the South, but God's judgment taking the blood of a nation to pay for the sweat of a people. Yeah. And um, so you can make arguments that our welfare system is a, is a, is a reparation system. Like it was designed to help the people who actually needed it to give them what they would need to succeed in America developmentally. And that schooling and universal and all these programs that we've created to help people in need in America are our mechanism of reparations. Mm -hmm. And so therefore paying reparations and, and just, like you can make all those arguments. The point is, is that like when, when Republicans just like sneer at the idea that racism has had an enduring economic effect on black families in America and therefore affected their overall wealth and all the kind of thing. I just, it just makes me mad. Yeah. Cause I'm like, dude, like, People in their 50s have, like in this country, experienced racism that affected their economic well-being. Yeah. And like those people aren't even really old yet. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And and like I, like I can look at my own life and my mom's an immigrant. Mm -hmm. And so like on one level, I have experienced the pull yourself up from your bootstraps deal. Like my mom came from Italy. My grandfather was illiterate. My brother has a PhD and three master's degrees and I have as much training as a doctor. Like I, I like I've lived the American dream of immigrants. Right. But my dad's family goes back to the Mayflower mm -hmm. and he was the first man for like nine generations that wasn't a Cornell man. And like, I know what it's like to have that kind of background too. And like the privileges that come with it. So I, I think that, yeah, I think there's a ton of stuff in the, in the Republican platform. That's just, there's insensitivities and lack of focus in like, and like um, a misunderstanding of the fragility of the human condition mm -hmm. and the compassion necessary to be given to people relative to it. And I think that um, I think that there've been moments like under George W. Bush, when he wanted to come up with something called compassionate conservative, where he was like, look, we, we have to have compassion, but the, his compassionate conservatism ended up just being another version of large government, which was basically Democrat policies, right? Just increase the amount of money we pay to people. Um, and it participated in the increasing bankrupting of the nation. So anyway, I think there's a lot. I think there is a ton of problems with the Republican ethos. And I think that there are some problems with its platform mm -hmm. as well. Um, I think there's some issues with its immigration policy that I just would not agree with. I do think that there is, there is a tension in the Democratic Party's economic policy um, where I think in certain ways it's too laissez-faire. I think that there is... Um, I think that there is a lack of concern sometimes with environmental questions and environmental issues. I think that's a real issue. Um, and I don't just mean like global warming and stuff like that, though. I, I'm open to that being an issue. Mm -hmm. um, I think that just um, the idea that like any business should be able to affect the environment negatively and not pay for that externality. I just think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever costs you, whatever costs you unload to others, including the land or the environment is a cost. And if you don't pay it, other people do. Right. And so I just don't think you should be able to create economic externalities and not pay for it. Huh. You know, um, 
So that's a tension within the Republican Party because there's a whole conservation hunter wing of the party that's very conservationist oriented and totally believes that. And then there's another wing that's very, we just need more economic activity at all costs. Right, right. And on one level, I think that that is very charitable because it is economic activity that lifts the poor. But there are some at all costs that I think are our prices too high. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry. Everything I say, like I know like there's six arguments against it and then four arguments against that. And it's, it's very hard for me to talk about these things simply, mm-hmm. but, but yes, there is a lot of stuff in the democratic or the Republican party that can be critiqued by biblical Christianity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move us to, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of stuff swimming in my head too and questions and it's, it is complicated and it's complex. And I think that's understandable that these sorts of questions that people are genuinely curious about, and I'm genuinely curious about and want to grow in, Mm -hmm. they don't just have a, you know, five minute answer. But I think the beginning of thinking about how to think about it. And even as you were talking, I just kept coming back too about this idea of caricatures that um, I think that's a part of this conversation, especially when it comes to making a caricature of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. um, especially when it seems like there's one glaringly obvious piece to the Democratic p- platform that a Christian can reject when it seems like some of the, at least some of the things that you were listing about the Republican Party seem more like, um, I mean, you, you even said an ethos of it, and that feels like a slippery eel to get your hands on. Yeah. And, and I would also argue that in the last four years, both parties have become more cravenly unprincipled in their behavior. Yeah. And so it's become increasingly difficult to know what we're even talking about when we talk about these parties, quote, platforms. Sure, sure. Right. Like yeah. like Trump delivered conservative judges and and Biden, I'm sure, will deliver more financial aid to people who he feels like need it. Um, in, in that sense, one will be Republican, one will be Democrat. But um, so much is just the he said, she said, who's up, who's down. Yeah. Like, like just trying to play in the press the worst thing possible. And um, and I just, I, I don't even, what I want is for the, what I want is for the country to be less political. That's what I want. Yeah. My goal is for the government to be a, play a smaller role in our lives, to control us less, and for there to be less sneaking, growing totalitarianism. I mean, that, I, for me, that's by far the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. Listen, I don't want to be ruled by, by like, like nationalist racists, and I don't want to be ruled by leftist progressives. Like, I don't want, I don't want any totalitarianisms. I don't want anybody to be so in the ascendancy that they can cancel everybody else. I don't want liberalism to die permanently. Mm-hmm. I want us to live by our free exchange and our free associations. I want people to work hard to do their own thing. I think we should do much more locally. I think almost nothing has to be done through the federal government. Almost nothing has to be done through the federal government. And most everything can be done locally. We just don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I just I think that government I think that government is itself an evil and is itself a good. And we need to get much straighter in our mind our our basic foundational political philosophy of what does government do well and what should it not do? How should we always distrust government and what ways should we give it our allegiance? Yeah. And then based on that, determine what we're going to do with parties and politics. Mm-hmm. Right. But so many Christians have never thought they've, they've never had an opportunity to think, you know, you go to university now and you just get indoctrination. Sure. Relative. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I had a conversation with my brother recently and he, I mean, like he, he's in California. He's pretty liberal. I'm sure he votes Democrat in every 
but like I was talking about universities, but just pray about like where my oldest daughter goes to university. And he, and he has always been embedded in the public university. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm just about ready to completely give up on it oh, wow. because the humanities are complete propaganda and the sciences are just looking for who can get the biggest grant money wise oh. to get the biggest payoff yeah. um, in the use of their, um, their research privately. And he's like, there's some good that comes out of it. There's no question, but the cesspoolness of it is, is becoming um, sclerotic and just, um, it's, it's, it's not good. It's, it's not great right yeah. now. Yeah. So. Um, okay. Well, that's going to wrap up our little section on politics. There are just two questions left. I'm going to ask them to you at the same time and we'll just do a rapid fire through these two questions and then we'll wrap up. The first is what do you think of the idea of Christian perfectionism? And the second is, are there any errors in the Bible? Both of those it are questions of it. it depends on what you mean by mm-hmm. right. So if you take Christian perfectionism to mean what the Bible means by the word teleos, right. that is completely mature, then that is what we are to be pursuing. And the New Testament teaches us that like achievement and dramatic achievement that is possible. Right, like part of the issue here is is that people think it's an either or. Either you believe that you can be, literally become perfect, mm-hmm. or B, like you should never think that you're growing in holiness because that's just pride, and you just like every day is just abject repentance because you're just terrible. Sure. And I just don't think that's what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that your standing before God is rooted in your justification, in your justification alone, but that the work of Christ can make dramatic and very profound change in you so as to grow you into complete maturity and the fullness of Christ. And the apostle talks about that, Paul, especially the apostle Paul, as though it's something we can experience now. Yeah. So whether or not we can be like literally perfect and not sin. And I don't know. Sure. Um, Wesley's view of perfectionism was we could get to the point where in faith, we could be so living in faith day to day that we would never consciously sin. Mm-hmm. That is, we would never sin a sin of presumption. Um, that's not the same thing as never sinning. And so I think sometimes people just um, misunderstand what perfectionism means. And of course, there's a number of versions of it too. So I believe that we can achieve Christian perfection if it means maturity and completeness in Christ. If it means perfection like the the greatest of all imaginable versions of a Christian, I think the answer is no. Um, whether or not there's errors in the Bible, uh, the answer is yes and no. So the Christian doctrine of inerrancy is, is that, um, the Bible is the word of God written and is inerrant or without error in the manuscripts. That is in the original manuscripts written by the original biblical authors, the doctrine of inerrancy inerrancy states that there are no errors in it. Mm -hmm. However, there are some errors in certain translations, um, that are in there for certain reasons relative to like translational questions, nothing like what you hear on like YouTube and stuff. Almost all of those kinds of arguments are just completely false. Sure. Um, but there are some, there are some places where like, there's probably a transcription error there that like has been carried on through copying and so on. So the, the argument that the Bible is an error is in the manuscripts, in the original writings. Mm-hmm. God inspired them as so as to be without error. And God has 
providentially um, protected the transmission of the Bible so that it's incredibly trustworthy. Um, but you know, there, there's a place here where like, um, for example, there's a number of places where, um, the Greek word for we is hemon, and the Greek word for um, us is humon. There's only one letter difference. Hmm. And there's a number of contexts where Paul is talking in the churches where we or you, either one could be what he would say grammatically. And the copying, there was an issue with copying where people aren't exactly sure if there was a eta or a upsilon there. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know if the apostle said we or you, plural, in that place, 100% sure. Sure. And so it's possible that there's an error. I'm doing quotations in my hand there. Yeah. But you'll notice that like functionally speaking, that is an entirely inconsequential thing, right? And so um, there's only – there's in, in all of the Bible, there's only really a few verses, just a few hundred words that are honestly disputed, and none of them um, changed the doctrine of the faith. Mm. So it just depends on your definition of error, sure. I guess. Sure. If you define it pedantically enough, then there could be a few errors in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But I don't know of any. There, there's a lot of discussions about some of the numbers in the Old Testament and whether we've transcribed them right or whether they're accurate or whether they were inflated. Almost all numbers from the ancient world in terms of battles are inflated. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of suspicion that those those numbers are inflated kind of in terms of how they were inflated then. And some people say, yeah, well, if there was a natural way battle numbers were inflated in the ancient world, sure. then the biblical authors would do that. That would be part of the culture of the time and it wouldn't be considered lying. Mm. So it's not an error, even if the numbers aren't the exact numbers of troops that there actually were. So some of these com- these conversations get kind of complicated, mm-hmm. right? But um, the Christian doctrine of inerrancy is that the Bible is the word of God written and inerrant in the original manuscripts. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that was a lot. We got through them. <laughs> thank yeah. you for taking time to answer them again. Thank you to everybody who asked these questions. Um, like always, if there are other things or follow-ups or clarifications, you can email us um, at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Um, and we'll be happy to either reply to you or mm-hmm. do another episode. But yeah, thanks everyone for listening. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.